put it over our hearts. Say this with me. It's a declaration of faith that we're going to make. This is my Bible. God's written living word to me. It tells me how he thinks. It tells me what God says I can have. And explains to me who God says I am. Because it's how he thinks, I choose to believe and act on what I'll read. And therefore I am transformed. Our text today is found in the book of Romans and we are going to be ending a very long series that we've had on the book of Romans, the first eight chapters. So today will be the conclusion of that. And then uh, later on in this month we'll begin a new series on how to tell your friends that you love Jesus. You know, it's crazy if you think about it, the God of the universe, the creator of nitrogen, pine needles, galaxies, and the E minor chord, loves us (laughs) with a radical, unconditional, self-sacrificing love. And today will be the unveiling of how that crazy love manifests in a practical way in our relationship with Jesus, with the Father. We come out of last week where we read the first 13 verses of chapter 8, and I want to remind you of the theme of last week and how we concluded. In verse 10, it says, Sin cannot find any expression in a corpse. Isn't that great? Verse 12 says, we owe the flesh nothing. So I just say to you in the name of Jesus, there is no expression of sin in your life. You're just free of it. You don't need to wrestle and fight and sweat and cry and fast and pray that Jesus would, you know, release you or set you free or help you with this struggle. You just just need to realize that in regards to sin, you're a corpse. Look at your neighbor and say, you look pretty good for a corpse. <laughs> See, Paul said in Galatians 3, verse 21, if a law had been given that could have given life, then covenant membership really would have been by the law. So you don't need to look into the law more. You don't need to look into touch not, taste not, handle not. I shouldn't be doing this. God, God help me stop doing this. You, you just need to do what Paul said in, in, in chapter 8 here. You're a corpse. Sin doesn't have any expression in a corpse. Back in verse 1, we read this. For those who are in Christ, we showed you how that the in Christ revelation of the New Testament is the key of God to dealing with all of the Bible. Francois Dutrois calls it the pin code of the Bible. How many of you have an ATM card? You have a pin code for that. You realize that without that pin code, you can't draw on the resources. Part of the reason that some of us may not be walking in the richness of all that God has spoken in his word that's ours, all that he's promised us, is because we haven't been using the pin code. The pin code is the in Christ revelation. And that simply means 
not more activity from me spiritually, but just resting in who I am in him. That's where my victory rests. That, that's where victory comes from, is resting in Christ. Now, today we're going to continue. And I, I want to go back with, in our study, to verse 10 for just a moment. But if Christ is in you, look at it. But if Christ is in you, I think we'll have it on the screen here. Then verse 11 says, if the spirit of him that dwells in you. As we're going to find out over the next couple of verses, God's love made you and me his offspring. I am the offspring of God. Now, many Christians struggle with passages like this when it has this conditional word, if. You see that there? But if Christ is in you, but if the spirit of him dwells in you. I have always read my Bible believing that the word if was a condition. What if instead of being a condition, it's a conclusion? You see, the Greek word for if can either be a condition or a conclusion. That makes a vast difference. Consider in this same chapter, verse 31, and we'll have it on the screen here. If God be for us, well now, is that a condition or a conclusion? If God be for us, then help me. If God be for us, who can be against us? Is that a condition? No. That's a conclusion. God is for me. So stop reading the book of Romans, and in particular, these more difficult passages where it seems like we're outside the grace of God, we're outside of faith, I'm outside of his blessing until I do something. God's not going to bless me until I do something. That's the if condition. I've always read my Bible that way. Here's another one, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. That's the same preposition, ek. And it always denotes source of origin. Mankind's association in Christ was God's doing, not ours. Let's look together, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Here's a big one. Everybody knows this passage. If you've been a Bible student, if you've gone to church very long, you know 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. I, I, I don't know if we have it on the screen or not, but let's look together at it. I'm, I'm turning now. You turn. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. When we get there, let's read it out loud. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Ready? Read. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. I've always read that as a condition. If I'm in Christ, I'm a new creation. But what if that's not a condition? What if it is a statement of conclusion? If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. That's a conclusion of the redemptive nature of God. You see, that verse does not say, if any man is in Christ. It says, therefore, if any man is in Christ. That means you have to read the context. Remember we talked about whenever you read a therefore, find out why it's therefore. 
See, verses 14 through 17 give us the context that verse was talking about when he said, if any man is in Christ. So I'm going back there. I had already turned away from it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's look at it. Verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Uh Uh-oh. That's not an if. That's a conclusion. Has Jesus died for all or just people that accept him? Has Jesus died for all or just those that go to church? Has Jesus died for everybody or just those who pray hard enough? You see what I mean? The therefore of verse 17 in context is dependent on 14, 15, and 16. Let's keep reading. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised from the dead. Whose sake? Only those that accept Jesus? No, for all. The context of of this is for every man. All. Okay, he continues, verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Now that's good advice for your neighbor. That's good advice for that problem that you're having at work. That's good advice for that troubling family member that you're, you know... You stay away from, but you have to see him. You know what I mean? You have to see him on Thanksgiving and Christmas. Nobody has anybody like that in your life. <laughs> Did you know you could, give, you could get along much better with everybody if you just realize Christ has already died for all of them. Christ has died for everybody. In God's mind, he already sees them saved. In God's mind, he already sees them born again. And so Paul says, look, let's stop considering people after the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ after the flesh, we regard him thus no longer therefore if anyone is in Christ. That's a conclusion. We are in Christ. Thankfully, we have been born again. We have been received by Jesus. The emphasis isn't on I have to receive Jesus. The emphasis is on he received me. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 says, Even as he chose us in him before the fall of the world, before the foundation of the world, God chose me. That wasn't my decision. That was his decision. And so, if any man is in Christ, is not a condition, it's a conclusion. God already chose me. Before the foundation of the world, God chose you. Before the fall of the world, God chose you and put you in Christ. Wow. Francois de Troyes, author of the Mirror Bible, says this, and I quote, If God's faith sees every man in Christ in his death then they were certainly also in Christ in his resurrection. Jesus did not reveal a potential you. He revealed the truth about you so that you may know the truth about yourself and be free indeed. I like that. So what we're talking about here is the language of family. Let's look at it. 
We're in Romans chapter 8. Look at verse 14. This is the language of family. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Notice the family language here, sons, father, children, heirs. Verse 14, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit provides guidance. He provides God's presence. I used to think that that meant that only those who are walking in the Spirit are mature enough to be sons. Now, there, there may be a hint of that here, but he's really not talking about that. In the context of chapter 8, he's talking about our family relationship here, the fact that we are the offspring of God. And so this is the conclusion. The Holy Spirit leads us. He guides us. He brings God's presence to tabernacle within us. That's a conclusion. That's not a condition. Verse, verse 15. I like what the, the mirror translation here says. Slavery is such a poor substitute for sonship. Verse 15. Isn't that good? I love that. There's no fear in being a child of God. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but do you have an area in your life right now that you recognize where you're actually afraid of something? Are you afraid? Are you afraid something's going to go wrong? Are you afraid something's going to turn out bad? Are you afraid something's not going to work out? Are you afraid that bill's not going to be paid? Are you afraid God doesn't really love you? Are you afraid that you're not going to be able to stop doing that habit that just has habitually bound you, and so therefore you're afraid God's not going to love you till you stop it? Are you afraid? There is no place for that. None of that exists. In the fellowship and family, the language of family that we find here in chapter 8. Slavery is a poor substitute for sonship, Paul says. There is no fear for the child of God. That goes back to verse 1. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 16 and 17 talk about us being heirs with Christ. Heirs of God co-heirs with Christ. What does that speak of? Three things. Intimacy, identity, and inheritance. You have immediate intimacy with Jesus and the Father. I know how this works because as a Christian, since being a Christian now since I was 14, being a pastor since I was 19, not going to tell you how old I am, but you can guess. 26. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. That was close, brother. Within a year or two, that was close. But I've been, I've been a believer. I've been a follower a long time. And I must admit, the majority of my life, I have seen chapter 8 as just the reverse of what I'm sharing with you this morning. I thought I had to work to please God. 
I thought I was on the outside of his presence until I matured enough and really started following and listening to the Holy Spirit. Then he'll call me a son. That is not the language of chapter 8. You are a son. You are a child. You are an heir. And you are immediately in his presence right now. You are intimate with him. Nothing you can ever do would separate you from that intimacy with the Father. You say, what about when I, what about when I sin? God climbs into the midst of that with you and gives you a big hug and he embraces you and he walks with you through it until you're out and free. We've always seen God as turning his back on us when we make a mistake. You know where we get that from? When Jesus died on the cross. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I've taught it too. God turned his back on Jesus. That's not what happened. That's another subject. I can't preach that. I'm, I'm way out of chapter 8 here, but I'll whet your appetite. That's not what happened there. That doesn't mean God turned his back on Jesus because he became sin. God was right there in the middle of it all. Now note, this couple of verses here that we've just read ending with verse 17 and then going into verse 18 talk about suffering regarding the difficult issue of suffering raised here I want to submit to you the rendering of the mirror translation for chapter or verse 17 and verse 18 here we go it'll be on on the screen behind me since we were represented and included in his suffering we equally participate in the glory of his resurrection. He has taken the sting out of our suffering. What seemed burdensome in this life becomes insignificant in comparison to the glory he reveals in us. Wow. I don't have to suffer to receive blessing. That's how I've always read this. He suffered... I co-suffered with him. Now I'm co-raised with him. And because he suffered for us, then that means that anything burdensome in this life becomes insignificant in comparison with the glory. Now Paul said this to Timothy, make no mistake, in this life you will have tribulations. But he finishes the verse by saying this, but out of them all God delivered me. Fellow believer, nowhere in the New Testament do any of the writers suggest or teach that we should accept disease and illness as a biblical form of Christian suffering, especially something that God has sent to humble teach or instruct us. So yes, as believers, we do suffer. Yes, as believers here in this fallen world, if you will, we still suffer some of the effects of sin. But praise God, here in chapter 8, both in verse 11 and in what we just read, the Spirit of God quickens our mortal flesh. And the sufferings that we do go through, not sickness and disease, those are not biblical sufferings, but persecution for your faith, the enemy attacking, various things like that. Paul suffered. Paul suffered many things because of his faith, because he was preaching the gospel. And yet his testimony was... Out of them all, God delivered me. So see, it's through our relationship 
because we are his offspring, because he has concluded we are in Christ, that suffering has already been done by the Lord Jesus Christ. So now our inheritance includes future glory. Verses 18 through 25, I'll read. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed in us, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to the futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons. We wait eagerly for the adoption as sons which is the redemption of our bodies. Wow. Let's keep reading. Verse 24. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is, not, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. All of creation is suffering all of creation is groaning to be delivered because of the fall. Now here's, here's what Paul says though. That's not your lifestyle because you are the first fruits of those who have been set free of that. Oh, you're not listening. Yes, creation is in a fallen state. Yes, creation is groaning and reaching to someday be delivered. And it will be. When you and I finally put on those new resurrected bodies, Jesus returns. All of creation is going to be loosed and set free. And creation is reaching and groaning for that day. That ultimate day of the manifestation of the sons of God. But you and I are the first fruits. Do you know what a first fruit is? It's the first to be and experience everything that's coming. The Bible tells you uh, to tithe, right? To tithe of all of your increase. And it calls it what? The first fruits of all of your increase. So what does that mean? It's the first of everything that represents the rest of what's coming. You are the first fruit of all that God has planned and that all that God has ordained in his great redemption of in the entire creation from the fall. We're not waiting to be redeemed from the fall. We are the first fruits of those and of that which has been redeemed from the fall. The rest of creation then is going to come. The mirror translation in verse 19 says this, Our lives now represent the one event every creature anticipates with held breath, standing on tiptoe, as it were, to witness the unveiling of the sons of God. Can you hear the drum roll? <laughs> How exciting is that? 
I'm not waiting to be delivered. I'm not waiting for the blessing of God. I'm not waiting and hoping someday that I can live in freedom and liberty, both physically, spiritually, emotionally, financially. I'm the first fruit of that. That came through the new birth when I received Jesus. And so now all of creation is standing on their tiptoes, looking. They're watching you. They're excited with you. And all of creation is groaning, anticipating the day when they too, all of creation, the trees, the rocks, the dirt, the animals, the bugs. Do you know bugs are going to be redeemed? That's why you ought to be careful which ones you squish. <laughs> Verse 23 from the Mirror Translation says this, We ourselves feel the grief echo of their groaning within us while we are ready to embrace the original blueprint also of our physical stature to the full consequence of sonship. What we already now participate in as first fruits of the Spirit will bloom into a full gathering of the harvest. You know what he's describing, don't you? Heaven. Do you remember out of the Old Testament where you read that the lamb and the lion are going to lay down together and there'll be no more violence? The lion won't want to eat the lamb? You know why? Because there'll be better food down the block. No, I'm just... <laughs> because there won't be that need. The lion will be completely satiated with the presence and the redemptive nature of God. And so violence and destroying will be completely gone, even from animals and the creation. We've already experienced it. We're first fruits, but it's coming for the rest of creation. And even the lamb and lion will lay down together and they'll be able to get along. And, and there just won't be. Won't that be awesome? What's he describing to us here in chapter 8? Heaven. This is what heaven looks like. Woo, glory. But this is, do you, are you making the connection here? This is talking about what heaven looks like. But what did Jesus teach us to pray in what we call the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, help me, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. <laughs> do, do you get the connection now? The reason Jesus taught us to pray that in the first place is because we already are in Christ redeemed. That's a conclusion, not a condition. I am there already. Hallelujah. Wow. Wow, 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 wow. All right. Let's move on. Verses 26 through 30. God loves you so much, his crazy love for you, that he seeks your advantage in everything that takes place in your life. God's crazy love seeks your advantage in everything. Okay, I'm going to read... Start in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. For the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn. There he is. In order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. I don't know about you, but I see something in verse 26. Again, it's one of those sort of therefores that you need to consider why it's therefore. We've just got done talking about God's love for his offspring. God's love for his offspring. It's a conclusion. It's the language of family. It's our inheritance and future glory. But now he's going to drill it down and zero in. He's going to talk about some practical things here on earth that is ours to enjoy in our relationship with God. So he says, likewise, he starts verse 26. Likewise, one translation says, in the same way. Another translation says, similarly. Another translation says, meanwhile. And he starts with prayer. He says, when you don't know what to pray for as you ought, the Holy Spirit will help you. Wow. When in one of the most intimate, personal aspects of our relationship with God, prayer, we don't know what to pray for as we ought, the person of the Holy Spirit will take control and help you pray. Have you ever had a bad day because you just you felt prayerless? You felt like your prayers were hitting a glass ceiling. You felt like prayer just isn't working and I don't know what to say. And No problem. Don't get all bent. Don't get all down on yourself. Don't get discouraged. God hasn't left you. He's right there. Intimacy is not stopped. No matter what you're feeling about your prayer life, intimacy with the Father never stops. The Holy Spirit comes and he takes over and he starts praying through us. Here's what Weiss translation says. And in like manner also, the Spirit lends us a helping hand with reference to our weakness for the particular thing that we should pray for according to what is necessary in the nature of the case. We don't know with absolute knowledge. But the Spirit himself comes to our rescue by interceding with unutterable groaning. Isn't that good? How many of you want a more dynamic prayer life? Now, are you going to fast? You're going to read more scriptures? You're going to set aside an hour a day to seek God? That's most people's response when you talk about increasing intimacy and spending more time with the Lord. They get into works. They get into more activity. And that's the last thing that God wants from us is more activity, more works. Activity does not equate with intimacy. You know what you need to do? Go about your business. Get ready for your day. Put your makeup on. Get your clothes on. Shower first. And then get in the car. <laughs> set your GPS. So you don't even have to think about it. Those things talk to you now. They tell you where to turn. You, don't, you know, you can just disengage now and just kind of... And what you're going to do is you're going to start just praying in your heavenly language as you're driving down the highway. You got something heavy in your life? You got some bills that are not paid? You have an issue with something at work with your employer? 
You know what you're going to do? You're not going to fast and pray and seek God more to change it. The Holy Spirit will help you. Start using your heavenly language. Just pray in the Holy Spirit on your way to work. And you know what happens when you do that? He always prays the perfect prayer in accordance with the will of God. You can't pray a faulty or defective prayer when you pray in tongues. Wow. Okay, verse 27 says that he intercedes for the saints in a consistent manner in accordance with the blueprint of the purpose of God, verse 27. His intercession for the saints is consistent with the blueprint purpose of God. I love that. Secondly here, so first is prayer. God will just God will take care of prayer for you. He gave you a prayer language for that reason. Number 2, favor. You are marked with God's advantage. Verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good to those who are called according to his purpose. Here's another if. Well, what if I don't love God? What if I disobeyed God today? What if I did something stupid? What if I sinned? God's not going to help me. He's not going to love me. He's not going to remove his favor. How many of you have ever felt that? Don't raise your hand. God's going to remove his favor because of what I did and what I said. (laughs) You are marked with God's advantage. Let me read verse 28 from the mirror translation. See if it makes an adjustment for you. Meanwhile, we know that the love of God causes everything to mutually contribute to our advantage. Is that on the screen, Jerry? Congregation... I call you to awake. I call you to arise. I call you to stir yourself. Read this with me. Ready? Read. Meanwhile, we know that the love of God causes everything to mutually contribute to our advantage. Having a bad day? Said some stupid things? Got bills at home? Aren't living the way that you know you should be to be pleasing to God? Quote, well... He hasn't given up on you. You're still part of the family. He hasn't pulled out his DNA. He hasn't stopped blessing you. That's what the enemy wants you to think. All of the conditional ifs of scripture, right? No, you, you just pull into his love. You accept that he loves you deeply. N- never, n- never more right now than at any time in your life. He loves you as much right now as any time in your life. Right in the middle of whatever you're going through. He's there. He'll help you with prayer, and he wants you to know he has advantaged you. I love that scripture. Wow. Meanwhile, we know that the love of God causes everything to mutually contribute to our advantage. Got a big week ahead? Got some things going on this next week? Do you know that God is going to cause everything in your week to mutually contribute to your advantage? What do you call that? Old Testament calls it the favor of God, the blessing of God. Could you say this? I'm under God's favor. God's blessed me. Why? Because I'm in Christ. And then finally, we have God's DNA. Verse 29, I read it, verse 29 says, 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Interesting. Jesus is the firstborn. Remember what we said about first fruits. Now it's talking about Jesus and calls him the firstborn among many brothers. Did you know you came from the same womb Jesus came from? I don't know about you, but th- that, that'll, that'll help you out right there. The next time you go down in yourself, you get discouraged, you start talking bad about yourself, start believing bad about yourself, wake up. Realize you've got God's DNA. You came out of the same womb that Jesus came out of. Wow. I came out of the same womb Jesus came out of. I have his DNA. The word used there in relationship to firstborn among God, among those, excuse me, among the brothers, firstborn, it's, it's like when an architect draws up a set of plans. You get the picture? God has already drawn up his plan for your life. And he did it before the foundation of the world. Before you ever said yes to Jesus, God saw you in Christ and like a master architect planned your life not for evil but for blessing and favor. Start believing it. Start believing it today. I walk today. I walk every day this week. I'm going to have a week filled with favor and blessing. Why? Because God has architected that. Is that a word? (laughs) Here's what the mirror translation says of verse 30. Jesus reveals that man pre-existed in God. He defines us. He justified us. And he also glorified us. He redeemed our innocence and restored the glory that we lost in Adam. Isn't that good? All right, here we go. Let's wrap up the chapter and we'll stop. Verses 31 through 39, I'm not going to read them all from the English Standard Version, which is my standard translation for study and preaching, but I am going to read verses 35 through 39, and I'm going to do so from the mere translation. Let me bring one thing to your attention. How many of you are familiar with what it says in verse 31? If God be for us, who can be against us? Right? If, there's one of those ifs, That is not a statement of doubt or condition. That is a statement of conclusion. God is for me. Nothing can be against me. Amen. So in this final, this final thrust that we take here about this crazy love of God, I want you to say this out loud with me. God's love assures my destiny God's love assures your destiny nothing ever can separate you from the love of God you ready let's go through it we're going to read it from the uh, um, mirror translation they'll have it for you up on the screen all right let's do it together everybody read verse 35 what will it take to distance us from the love of Christ You name any potential calamity. Intense pressure of the worst possible kind. Claustrophobia. Persecution. 
destitution, loneliness, extreme exposure, life-threatening danger, or war? Let me quote scripture to remind you. Yea, for thy sake are we killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. On the contrary, in the thick of these things, our triumph remains beyond dispute. His love has placed us above the reach of any on... Stop. His love. Somebody, the Lord mentioned through the word of knowledge about somebody that had darts uh, filling your heart, attacking you. You've been under attack and there's been darts and he's stopping those. It's that verse. You don't have to worry. You don't have to worry about anything anybody has said contrary to the will of God about you. He's got your back. He's got your destiny. His love has placed me I can just see myself driving or in prayer or walking little Theo. Some of you don't know who Theo is. Do you know who Theo is? Do you know who Theo is, Randy? That, that, that's not an Old Testament character. That's my dog. When I'm out walking Theo, God talks to me about these scriptures. And so I'll just make declarations of faith now while I'm out walking Theo. His little spirit, because he's, he's part of the creation that's being redeemed, right? His little spirit hears that. No, I know. I know. My wife's up here being technically, scripturally, biblically correct. He doesn't have a spirit. My Theo does. Maybe your Theo when you walk him doesn't, but my Theo has one. He's going to live forever. But as I'm walking my dog, I just, I, I, I go back and I, I have these scriptures on my smartphone. And so I'll be walking the dog and I'll, I'll pull these up and I'll just, I'll just declare out loud with my mouth. Lord, I thank you that today you have placed me above the reach of any onslaught. Now, here's the cool thing. That neighbor, that coworker, that family member that, quote, isn't born again yet, this is true about them too. This is how God sees them. This is what God desires for them. This is what God has architected for them. Do you realize that in sharing the gospel now, it changes everything? Isn't it interesting that the very thing we've always preached about grace sort of disappears when it comes to preaching the gospel? What's the first thing we tell people when we tell them the gospel? You've got to change, repent of the things you're doing, ask forgiveness, go to church, and receive Jesus and show us that it's stuck. Isn't that the gospel, right? You've got to... Repent, get forgiveness, go to church, and I want to see some fruit. <laughs> what are we doing? We're turning the very gospel message into a religion of works again. It's not about me receiving Jesus, it's about him having received me. And so now, mine is a welcome, Jesus. Welcome. Welcome into my heart. 
I welcome all of this favor and change. I welcome your DNA. I welcome my redemption. I welcome this new innocence that I have in you. Thank you, Father, for forgiving my sin. Past tense. Thank you for making me a new creation in Christ. Past tense. And bam, there's a transition. Something happens between who you are and what you become in that moment in reality. It's been in the mind and heart of God, but suddenly a curtain parts and you step into another reality. It's called the new birth. Let's finish verse 38. This is my conviction. Do we have it on the screen? This is my conviction. No threat, whether it be death or life. Read it. Be it angelic beings, demon powers, or political principalities, nothing known to us at this time or even in the unknown future. No dimension of any calculation in time or space, nor any device yet to be invented, has what it takes to separate us from the love of God demonstrated in Christ. Jesus is our ultimate authority. You see how chapter 8 beautifully closes now this tremendous expose of eight chapters long where God says, I'm crazy in love with you. I died to redeem you. And coming to me and receiving all I have for you isn't a system of works, isn't a system of what you have to do, It's a parting of the curtain and saying, thank you, God, I receive all you've done for me. I accept the new birth. I accept Jesus as my Savior. And in an instant, you step into a new reality and you are changed. 